Hello and welcome to another episode of the Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Bellotti, and I am so excited today to have Brianne Kimmel, who is the founder of Work Life Ventures. Brianne, thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So today we are going to talk about a growth channel strategy tactic uh, that we haven't covered before in the podcast, which is something that I work on day to day over at Drift uh, and Brianne built over at Zendesk, which is a four startups program. So offering a discounted program and kind of operating as your own P&L statement within a company to drive early customers in their life cycle, startups that are just getting started that maybe can't afford, you know, a bigger, uh, more expensive version of the product. And so we're going to talk about how that fits into the business, like why it's a good growth strategy, what Brianne did over at Zendesk to, to build it out. And I think we'll go ahead and, and jump in. So Brianne, why don't you give us a quick rundown of what the startup program at Zendesk looked like, and then we could start to talk through like how you built it, things that worked, things that didn't. Yeah, that sounds great. And I'm, I'm looking forward to this topic. I feel like it's one that hasn't really been covered yet. So it's really cool that we're going to have this conversation. So when I was at Zendesk, the startups program, it achieved a few goals. Firstly, as we were moving up market and thinking about transitioning from a single product to you know, a multi-product company that ultimately turned into a bundle. You know, realistically for startups, as a company starts to move up market, their pricing changes, it becomes more expensive. For us, this was a way for us to offer a solution for startups that was within their budget and, you know, something that they could access the full, you know, benefit of all of the new products without necessarily spending too much. The other thing for us is we leverage the startups program as a way to launch into new markets. If you look at the types of companies that are most likely to use software, if you're expanding into emerging markets, you know, that would be high growth startups that are interested in using the same tools that may have some brand awareness or, you know, in some cases there may be a local player. And so you want to go in in a more friendly way that's not head-to-head competition as far as saying like we're the big guys coming into you know a new market and so I found that the startups program was a great way to give back to new ecosystems and to build close relationships with incubators accelerators and VCs and other markets and the startups program is becoming more it's become more and more popular over the past decade uh, I know HubSpot is one that comes to mind that has built a, a pretty comprehensive program uh, what are some others that you've seen that are out there that seem to work well yeah it's interesting I mean when I think about startups programs the closer you can get to core infrastructure and you know really tools that startups need to use every day you know the better position you're going to be in. AWS comes to mind as being one where if you talk to startups, you know, they're all using AWS and they all take full advantage of the free credits. You know, I think one of the criticisms that that program has is sometimes it's hard to know exactly where you're at in the, you know, in the life cycle of those free credits and it can become really expensive quickly. But, you know, for startups that are getting their business off the ground, AWS is the obvious decision. And so their ability to offer free credits and programs and education has become a very valuable asset to their business. Yeah. And for us here at Drift, the our core thing is we have moved more and more up market. You know, we started off serving uh, SMBs, uh, VSBs, very small businesses. And over time, it built more and more enterprise feature sets. And for us, you know, similar to, to what you were saying before about the product mix changing, like we built We've been building more and more towards a platform that is a very high cost entry point, but we want to have some protection towards the bottom of the market. And and so that's how we think about it. 
Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And that's something that we saw at Zendesk as well. It's like, you know, the first question that you'll need to ask when you're building one of these programs is what is our definition of a startup? And for a lot of software companies, especially if you're starting with more bottom up adoption, you know, Zendesk has done incredibly well with small businesses, solo founders, you know, smaller e-commerce companies, you know, maybe they're built on top of Shopify. The challenge there is that if they're not the type of startup that's going to experience some level of hyper growth mode, then it doesn't necessarily become a startup account that um, will ultimately convert to a paying customer. And so I oftentimes encourage startups to ensure that there are guardrails in place. You know, oftentimes it's a 12 month program or maybe it's some sort of credit system where you make sure there is a path to converting this free user to a paid user. Yeah. So I would love for this episode, let's get into some tactics here so that people can listen and say, uh, you know, we want to start one. How should we think about it? So so what you said is it's important to make sure that you're clearly defining what a successful startup looks like and, and what that, you know, what the fit is. How did you approach it and how would you recommend somebody else approach it? Is it like dig into your numbers and look at like who has grown? Is it, you know, look at the existing market and who is down playing at that price point? Like what what's the what's the approach? I'll explain it in two ways because I think it's an important context. If you're a company that has product market fit that maybe started as more of a bottom-up SaaS company and you're starting to move up market, the startups program there in a lot of ways, is a defensibility play. It's a way to continue to be relevant with early stage companies and to make sure that you are partnering with companies that are likely to scale into really large accounts. Um, you know, I have this saying that, you know, once a software company is 10 years old, you know, they are ripe for disruption. And I think even in this environment, you know, there are so many new companies that are getting started. And at the seed stage, I see this a lot where, Many companies, uh, good ideas come in bunches. And so you'll see a handful of companies that are, you know, largely solving the same problem with a relatively similar solution. And so I find that the startups program can be helpful for the category creator or the market leader to really stay relevant with early stage companies and make sure they don't miss out on the next big Uber, Airbnb. Like you want to capture those companies when they're really small, because, you know, if you have great retention, which that's what all of us aspire to have in SaaS, then you want to make sure that you're getting them when they're, you know, a handful of seats or a really small account and they can grow into something much bigger. For startups that I'm seeing today, I mean, I'm seeing startups programs from even seed and series A stage companies. And so I think this has become sort of the new, the new normal for software companies. For those companies in particular, something that I see that's really awesome is the fact that because you are going to market as more of a peer, the nice thing there is that you can build out a lot of lifecycle programs and you know, education for your users that are more peer level. So a great example of this is, you know, I've helped Notion get their startups program off the ground. And what's awesome about their program is that the ability for Notion to share how they use Notion internally is actually a really compelling value prop. I think there's a lot of mystery around the company and a lot of other software companies would love to learn, you know, how they think about design, how they think about, you know, documentation internally, how they think about a lot of different aspects of the business. And so if each team open sources or shares their documentation on Notion, that's a huge value add to the ecosystem. And startups are likely to adopt that product because they've received so much education up front. 
So let's talk a bit about goals and the mission of a program, of a startup program. So, you know, off the top of my head, there's a few core benefits that you can get out of it. One is amazing net retention numbers because you get expansion from from that. You know, it could be a pure revenue play, just drive more business at the bottom of the market. It could be a defensibility play. It could be a brand awareness play. It could be a lead generation for mid-market type play. Like, how do you think about you know, if somebody's spinning up a program, it's easy to get lost. I know in the early days we were kind of lost in like, what's our goal? Oh, it's kind of all of them, right? Like they're, they're all good things that we get as a benefit. How would you think about like prioritizing that and getting a company to think about like, you know, we should approach it in this order and here's why. It's a great point. And it's something that comes up consistently with companies as they're thinking about the zero to one for a startup program. You know, it's interesting in the early days when we were looking at Zendesk and all of the existing content and resources and things that we had already that were pretty much already tailored for startups. For us, it was maybe less of a brand awareness play and more of measuring program adoption. I think at the end of the day, if you're building a SaaS company, there's always this tension between sales and marketing, and that's very natural. And so I find on the sales side of things, you know, we opted to have SDRs and a pretty lean, uh, scalable way of closing startups accounts just because they are going to be higher velocity. And, you know, you do want to have metrics in place where we also looked at, we wanted to look at what percentage of startups that were signing up for the program were venture backed startups. Like that gave us a nice qualification model where we had more conviction that these companies would scale into larger accounts. And so I think many of these startups accounts can be treated differently. Some may come through just pure play self-serve funnel. Other may need, you know, their own life cycle programs, or even um, we would do, you know, weekly, monthly webinars to get, you know, a group of startups that were in, you know, a similar stage or similar category um, onboarded at the same time. And so I think the key thing with the startups programs is making sure that a lot of the things that you're doing are programmatic in a lot of ways. Um, that way you're not too reliant on the sales team because at the end of the day, they are typically starting out with a discount or free for a while. And so I found that as, you know, if you can measure adoption of the program, if you can measure account expansion over time, which sometimes those metrics can take a little while. And so it does tend to be a little bit more of a lead gen motion if there may be growth stage startups or just pure play startups that are going through the self-serve funnel at the very beginning. So we're starting to lean into some like things that work well and best practices. Can you talk through maybe one or two things that you did at the program that were like, this was a big win. It worked really well for us building this out. Yeah, I would say, you know, if the objective of the company, um, this is part of the growth team, and this is meant to be something that's scalable, and that's, you know, tied into, like growing revenue of the business, I think then the program is built in a very different way. Um, I've talked to startups where it's purely a brand awareness play. I think one of my concerns there is that it's less measured. And, you know, we've all worked with startups before and they need a lot of help. And so it's one of these things where if it's more of a brand awareness play, it can be a little bit harder to measure exactly, you know, what are the inputs and outputs of this program? Are we creating too much content? Are we speaking at too many events? I think this is very similar to, in a lot of ways, you know, how developer tools go to market, where I talk to, you know, large companies, if you look at the Microsofts of the world, you know, they're developer evangelists speak at a lot of conferences, they do a lot of webinars, they're doing a lot of more brand building activities. 
because uh, the business is in a really good place. You know, I feel like startups don't really have the luxury of doing those sort of things. If anything, like they'll have to really map out what does the startup user journey look like. And in a lot of ways, one mistake that I see a lot of startups make is you have to make sure that there aren't any leaky buckets with a startup program. Like you need to make sure that, you know, you're tagging these accounts accordingly. You want to measure exactly how many touch points, like human touch points are attached to each of these accounts. Because if anything, you want to make sure that this is a program that adds a lot of value. It doesn't necessarily complicate your go-to-market or become something where it's, um, you know, more of a line item and, and more of a cost as opposed to being something that's generating new revenue. Yeah. So I would love to get your take around resourcing and the approach to like putting team behind it. So when we first launched the startup program at Drift, it was kind of like a thing that we did mainly for brand awareness. We did it in 2018. And then it just sort of existed in the background of our company for a while. There wasn't anybody like thinking about it day to day. And I think that kind of happened, seems to happen with some startups or companies that get excited about a startup program, they go launch it, and then it just sort of exists. How do you think about resourcing in ways that make it successful? Maybe like, what was the team behind it at Zendesk? How did that team build over time? Yeah, it's it's a really great question. It really depends on the size and stage of your company. I will say that the first iteration of Zendesk for startups was an experiment that was born out of our growth team. And it was primarily a landing page experiment with coupon code. And so we had this you know promo code and it was this program that was quietly running in the background. However, we reached this inflection point when we started thinking about competition and we were seeing, you know, things like Freshworks, you know, was doing really well in India. We saw programs like Front and even Intercom to an extent um, were starting to take some market share. And so there was a company-wide decision where startups need to be a priority for the company again. I think when you're just getting started, you know, startups have the benefit of selling to other startups. And, you know, historically, that's just based, been based on close proximity. You know, the Bay Area startups like to try each other's companies. Same goes for Boston. Same goes for New York. I think now that we're in a fully distributed world, I think there's even more pressure to have a startups program. And so that's something that I, I think a lot about where, you know, if you want to start with a very scalable V1, it may just be a landing page experiment where you're starting to test more startup specific messaging, you're including relevant startup logos, and, you know, figuring out ways to accelerate startups through even to at, start, at the start, it could just be through your self-serve funnel. And so that's one way to think about it. The decision to have uh, more of a GM structure, which would be like a head of head of startups, which can be a lot of things to different people. Oftentimes it's, you know, someone that's more of like a revenue minded business focused person. You know, they're going to be coordinating with marketing and sales. In our case, there was a lot of international components as well. And so we were plugged into our field marketing reps as well, and also partnering with GMs in new markets to make sure that they had the adequate resourcing, translation, you know, even in-person programming to ensure that startups in their regions uh, were, were all using Zendesk. And so I think there's a lot of ways that you can think about structuring it. It typically depends on the resources that you have. But I would say, I mean, specifically, um, when you think about SaaS in particular, you know, I think from a product-led growth standpoint, it's great to have, you know, either uh, a growth engineer, a growth marketer, someone that's really helping you map out each step of the funnel, just to make sure that, you know, you're not necessarily 
cannibalizing growth for mid-market and enterprise? You know, at what point is a startup no longer a startup? In, and really figuring out, you know, to what extent are there is there repeatability in the model? Um, especially if you're thinking about international, I think translation is something that comes up a lot when I talk to teams that are building um, startups programs. And so I think it's also being very clear and intentional on when you plan to expand into new markets, because now we're starting to see, you know, Silicon Valley isn't the only place where people are starting SaaS companies. And so I think there's this pressure to go as international as quickly as possible. But I think keeping in mind, how do you do that in um, in an intentional way where you're not necessarily going out with something that doesn't meet your quality bar in your home country. And when you think about all these things that it can impact, you know, international expansion, there's marketing component, there's, it may touch like a high velocity sales type component. How do you think about reporting structure of where this, like who owns the startups program? Like, do, have you seen like a best case is under marketing or best cases under sales or best case? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great question. It depends on the structure of the company. You know, I find for um, product for um, more bottom up SaaS companies, um, you know, sitting with in product can actually work well as well. Like if you already have a growth team that's established, you may have a growth PM that's dedicated to the startups program. In that scenario, you'd likely want to have a content marketer. You know, maybe this is a dotted line and it's someone that technically sits in either product marketing or in marketing. Um, someone that really builds out a lot of the lifecycle programs and makes sure that startups are receiving the right education at the right time. You know, that's going to make sure that you have strong engagement and strong retention. Um, and that's something that's important for startups. I also find that, you know, this is a little bit harder to execute. I find that with customer success, you know, CSMs like to hit a very specific number. However, having a dedicated CSM and someone that can that thinks more programmatically that wants to take on a large volume of accounts, that was really critical in the Zendesk case because as we were transitioning from a single product to multiple products, a lot of startups were aware of Zendesk as the ticketing software, but they were less familiar with the new products. And so, you know, at least having the ability to set up a 15-minute call. You know, we were using all the tools. We were using Calendly. We were automating as much as possible to make sure that startups did have access to a CSM. However, it wasn't, you know, the same level of support that you would get with a mid-market or enterprise account. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. In terms of pricing and packaging, how often should the pricing and packaging change? Or, you know, what is the approach to, you know, we've, over the past couple of years in the startups program, we've changed the pricing and packaging three times. And it was kind of a function of how is the rest of the business and product shifting and how do we like continually realign with that? Is that how you would approach it is like watch the rest of the company and realign or is it kind of like, you know, do pricing and packaging in your own microcosm? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I go back and forth on this. I think for the startups accounts, because they're growing very quickly, you know, oftentimes if you start with a free trial or if you start with something that enables as many people to use the product inside the company, that's helpful. Like, you know, you see some of the network effects that are starting to happen from, you know, starting with an individual user who maybe they've discovered through a friend, maybe they've discovered it, you know, from another startup that's tweeted about it. Like there's so many ways that people discover new tools today. What's interesting is if there are ways for you to, you know, find the right initial entry point and then have an initial 
you know, trial or some program in place where as many people are using it as possible, you can start to actually measure and track how your software specifically spreads team by team. And so I think that can be a really compelling thing. Like one thing that I encourage a lot of startups to think about is like find moments in the product where there is a lot of friction. And in a lot of ways for self-serve products today, like you'll see a lot of SaaS companies are using a lot of templates. They're actually baking in suggested templates, even in the onboarding flow. And the reason for that is if you can identify which teams are most likely to use your software, you'll be in a really great position for, you know, opening up, you know, the full breadth of, of your product in a short amount of time and get as many users as possible within the company to try it. And so I think it's a question of like, how do you Think about growing each account from the beginning if if that's, you know, if you're going more horizontal and you're starting more bottoms up. I will I will say, you know, with there's a misconception that startups aren't able to pay for software. I think if we look at the startup environment today, you know, companies are raising bigger and bigger rounds and they're raising funding rounds faster than ever before. And so a growth stage company is very well capitalized. And if anything, um, this is where it creates tension internally because for you know, the sales team, they would love to convert these accounts to paying customers as quickly as possible because they're at that inflection point where, you know, I'll use Hopin as an example. You know, I am an investor in a company called Hopin, and they have been around for two years and they already have 820 employees. And so if you're a SaaS company that's trying to sell to a company that's in hyper growth, the sales team is going to want to convert that to a paying account really quickly because it doesn't matter how long they've been around. What matters is there's a lot of seats at stake. And so that's something to keep in mind as well is there may be some scenarios or some outliers where, you know, whether it's you set a maximum number of seats or a maximum amount of time that you can be on the startup program, having those guardrails in place are important because once you have pricing and packaging in one place, it's hard to charge more. And so that's something where I think it's helpful to do some willingness to pay tests, even for startups, just to get a sense for what tools are they using already? What's their overall software spend? And then you can sort of map like how many employees do they have today and like even asking them where they do they where do they plan to be in the next 12 months to get a really sense on get a really strong sense on a per startup basis, like how fast they're going to grow. You touched on something really thorny in there, which is around the relationship with the sales team, like the sales team relationship to the startup program. And I've talked to some companies that have very successful startup programs and chatted with a couple of the reps and they're like, I hate the startup program. Like it always gets in the way of my deals. Uh, What are some things that you would say or tips or advice for maintaining a good relationship with sales over time? Yeah, it's so funny, man. I hear this all the time. And I think oftentimes, you know, the startups that I'm talking to, they are essentially pre, they're just shy of hiring a go-to-market leader. And so oftentimes the startups program is uh, built out of a sense that, you know, when you're building a startup, you know, a lot of other startups. And so you're creating a lot of content that are helping peers that are helping your early customers. And naturally, you know, as the company starts to scale, you start to layer in more of the uh, go-to-market org. What's interesting is I hear this a lot because oftentimes when startups are thinking about building a startup program, it's pre go to market leader. And so they'll end up 
building a program, you know, maybe you've created customer stories or you've built out, you know, email nurture programs, like you've done all the things and they're in a really good place. Oftentimes the first thing that a go-to-market leader wants to come in and rethink or, you know, evolve and build on is pricing and packaging because oftentimes you are leaving money on the table and a lot of startups come out the gate being really helpful and being really nice and Oftentimes when I when I talk to teams, it's not built on necessarily insecurity, but I think oftentimes when you're just getting a business off the ground, you want to be as helpful as possible and you treat each startup or each account that you close as like one that you can't lose. Like at the very early days, even small startups can be your whales. And so as you start to scale, what's interesting is when go-to-market leaders come in, oftentimes the, the first question is, what are we going to do with this startups program? You know, I think this is where, you know, we've started to see, I mean, at Zendesk, we saw this, you know, as we started to roll out our bundle and as we started to change our pricing, there were increasingly restrictions that were put on the program, not necessarily ones that would cannibalize growth, but ones that would optimize for expansion. And I think that's important where you still want to have some sort of free trial or some sort of free program to get startups at least trying your product. And then from there, you know, having the right team structure in place where you do have CSMs in place that are able to really mine each account and figure out how to expand it over time. Yeah. And for me, the way that I think about, you know, we're still, we still have a long way to go to continue growing the program at Drift. And to me, it feels like the best way that we can stay aligned with sales is to prove to them that these are going to be good accounts. They will expand. They will get put in your name as they grow and they will you know, basically show up as like free expansion revenue for you over time. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a few interesting anecdotes here as well. One thing that we saw at Zendesk was by having a large, pen- like large penetration of startups, by having mindshare with early stage companies, this was actually really helpful for us in mid-market and enterprise like if you look at many, um, I'll use e-commerce as an example. If you look at large retailers, like they're looking to direct consumer brands to reimagine their customer experience, to think about brand building and how they interact with their customers. And so it was an in, there was an interesting moment where we realized actually that the startups program isn't cannibalizing mid-market or enterprise necessarily, as long as you have the guardrails in place. What we're seeing is that those accounts, it's low cost acquisition. Um, we're not acquiring them through paid ads. We're not acquiring them through, you know, expensive field marketing events. We're acquiring them in a really efficient self-serve way. Um, we're converting them to paying customers. And then we're turning those startup customer stories into basically Stories that we can share to mid-market and enterprise, knowing that they look to early stage companies for innovation. Yeah, love that. You helped build the program at Zendesk, and now you've advised a bunch of other uh, companies on how they can spin up a startups program. Are are there any key things that you say now, like, if I were to start it over again, I'm going to make sure to know about this thing or look out for this or, you know, put this in place early? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing is these sort of programs have compounding advantages. And so when it comes to, you know, creating customer stories, hosting webinars, I feel like in a lot of ways, startups or companies that are building startups programs are already sitting on a lot of information on a lot of assets. And so I will say that a lot of the education and emails and, 
you know, things that we use to get the startups program off the ground were not necessarily brand new. A lot of it was just, you know, slightly changing the copy to being relevant for startups. It was leveraging existing stories and programs that we already had in place. And it was really packaging it up in a way where we could take it to startups directly through like our self-serve funnel or, you know, strengthening our relationships with the YCs of the world to make sure that we were at least present in any of the directories where incubators, accelerators, VCs are offering free startup promo codes and that sort of thing. Cool. Anything else that you haven't had a chance to touch on that you want to make sure that we share before we wrap up? Yeah, I think the international piece is really interesting. You know, I'm, I'm very much a remote work nerd. And so I get really excited when I see companies that are innovating in new markets. One thing that I've seen that's, you know, worked really well is, you know, these startups programs can be a really relevant way to break into a new market. It's an easy way to identify, like using VCs and accelerators to identify what are high growth startups in new markets. How do we close some of the highest, you know, fastest growing startups in different countries? And how do we use that as a way to really build brand awareness and to build credibility in a, in a new part of the world? I think that's a really interesting piece and something that I've seen a lot of startups do really well. You know, one thing that I will encourage teams to think about is, you know, try to do this as efficiently as possible, you know, rather than hosting a big event or, putting a lot of, you know, physical resources behind it, oftentimes one customer story from a really high growth startup in the right market is enough to get started. I find that with a lot of these things, um, you know, historically, it seems like a lot of startups programs have been more, more of a mix of uh, maybe field marketing plus business development plus plus plus. That's why I mentioned like, having this start as more of a growth experiment and then scale into something that's more product led, I find to be more beneficial. It's highly efficient. It's scalable. You know, I find with with startups, you know, you really only need a handful of the best logos to really prove that you're able to not only partner with startups, but scale with them over the long term. And so that's something that I think about a lot as well is like, how do you do this in the most product led and capital efficient way, especially if you're an early stage startup getting um, this program off the ground? Good stuff. Brianne, thanks so much for talking through all this. This has been great. Yeah, this has been a ton of fun. Yeah. And I want to make sure you get a chance. You're working on work-life ventures these days. You want to just give the audience a quick rundown of what that is? Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. So I started work-life ventures back in September of 2019. SaaS Focus Fund, um, early investor. And I was an early investor in Webflow um, as an angel investor Work life is invested in Hopin and public and Clubhouse. And so we're really thinking about, you know, how do you make work as creative and flexible and, you know, more human as possible? And so we invest in a lot of bottom up SaaS companies. And it's been really fun. I think, you know, building the startups program was honestly one of the inflection points that made me realize that I wanted to start investing. It's kind of a non obvious way to get into venture. But as I was building the startups program, meeting with VCs. And, you know, I had the opportunity to work with Station F in Paris and got to spend more time in regional startup ecosystems. And so I feel like it's one of these things, once you catch the startups bug, you know, you either start advising or in my case, I started angel investing and and then I raised a fund. But, 
yeah, it's been a ton of fun um, helping companies with early go to market. You know, I, I love building self serve companies, and so it was great to yeah catch up with you. I mean, Drift is a company that I've admired for a very long time. You know, I think you've done an amazing job on brand building and and really reimagining like how do you think beyond traditional B2B marketing. I think in a lot of ways, you know, I rarely see lead gen forms anymore or the old school way of doing things. And I think Drift has really written the playbook in a lot of ways. Awesome. Well, very much appreciated. Thank you again for joining. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and I appreciate you spending your time here. Yeah, this was great. Thanks again, Matt. Absolutely. And for all of you listening, thank you so much for tuning in. If you like this episode, hit the subscribe button. Check out the other episodes that we've got in the library. There's tons of good stuff in there. Leave a review if you're a fan. And as always, thank you for spending your time here listening. I know there's tons of other things you could be working on, doing, watching, whatever it might be. And you're spending it here listening to this podcast. So I super appreciate it. My email is mattadrift.com. You get any feedback, topic ideas, guest ideas, whatever it might be. Thank you. And I'll catch you on the next episode. Bye.